0: Interesting passage this morning. We've been in John chapter 4, and we have uh, looked at a number of things. Last week, wrapping up with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Remember uh, that Jesus came to the well, Jacob's well, there near Sychar, uh, near uh, actually ancient Shechem, and had this dialogue with the woman, and she got so excited. This woman that was totally like probably the one in town that nobody wanted to talk to goes and, and proclaims Christ to everybody she could see. And uh, Jesus ends up spending two days there in Sychar and uh, ending with a great deal of the population there being saved, being converted, being coming to faith in Christ. And and it ends in, in verse 42, which is, is interesting. Uh, we're gonna pick up in verse 43, but in verse 42 it says, and they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so we see in that that here Jesus has, remember we talked about that. She starts out kind of addressing him derogatorily as a Jew, you know, kind of a thing. And, And by the time he's finished, he spent two days there. They're no longer believing because of what other people had said about Jesus. They're believing because they've heard from him themselves. And they're believing because of the word that he spoke to them. Um, And so uh, that's significant because of where we're going this morning. Now, when we finished last week, we looked at uh, Jesus being welcomed into Galilee. And I want to take a different angle on that this morning because there are some things in the text there that I think are very telling that you can miss. It's very subtle, sort of an underlying theme that we see beginning to unfold here in the Gospel of John. So uh, with that... Verse 43 and 44. I'm going to read them together. Now after two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Interesting. If you have the NIV, it says now Jesus in verse 44. Not for Jesus. The word for there, and and I'm not trying to be nitpicky here, but uh, it's very indicative of how these sentences are structured. And it is in the original language. But the word there for for means because. So reading that again, now after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee because Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So essentially what John is writing here is he's saying that Jesus is reaching out to a people that dishonor him, that they really don't get what he's about. And that's indicated further by the text that we're going to look at this morning, because we're going to see here in verse 45, he says, so... When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So, taking that now, interesting, what we've looked at is the textual context. When we look at the word four here, when I, when I study, I, I like to look at four contexts. I look at the textual context. The contextual context, what's the greater view, zooming out. What's the historical context? What's happening? What's the cultural context? What's going on in their culture? And, and those there are other contexts, but those are the four primary ones that we look at as we take a, an honest study of God's word, asking it to reveal things about God to us. Not the other way around, coming with a preconceived idea and then trying to make it say what we want it to say. That's bad scholarship. It's bad study habits. It's The best way is to and it's called to exegete, to, to allow the, the, the word to speak to us. So here, looking at this, Jesus went there because a prophet is not welcome in his own country. We see that it, it, they said that they had seen him at the feast. Well, it's a wrong receiving, essentially, uh, that John is beginning to outline here in the Gospel of John. It's, it's, a, it's a receiving that Jesus doesn't trust. we look, remember in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, I'll read them here. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, remember this is the same one where John is now talking about the people in Galilee, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he had done, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. They were beginning to be attracted to him because he did signs and wonders. Uh, It was not a full-blown faith. It was a faith in the fact that he knew how to wow the crowd. Uh, I was thinking about this, and I remembered uh, one summer when my kids were teenagers, uh, a company that I worked for gave me like a half a dozen tickets to go see David Copperfield. And I I don't know if you know who he is. It's like, yeah, oh, it's right. (laughs) It was a great show. I mean, the guy made it snow in the whole auditorium. I don't know how he did that. But, um, but it was sensational. And we took this Japanese exchange student from Calvary Chapel Chico. had lined us up with an exchange student. This guy, he couldn't speak a word of English. Uh, and we just basically poured the gospel into this kid all summer. And, and it was great. Well, we went up to uh, go see this show. And, and I still remember him and his Japanese going, oh. oh, oh you know, and he couldn't say any English, that every now and then he'd let, rattle a whole line of Japanese, we had no idea what he's saying, but uh, because the sensational crossed all of the language lines, I thought it was a great thing to take him to this, because we didn't have to worry about him understanding English, this guy was just, you know, having the appearance of altering the laws of physics as he's up there with his sleight of hand and all, he's, and he's obviously really good, he's one of the best musicians in the world, so in a sense, that's what people are starting to be attracted to Jesus by. They're seeing this ooh and awe, ah, but they're not seeing why he's there to do that. They're not seeing that he is, of course, controlling the laws of physics because he owns them, as I've mentioned before, but they're seeing that he's He's kind of wowing, wowing the crowd, and these people are the ones that were at the feast when Jesus went there. You know, so looking again at the broader contextual context, I'm going to go out to chapter 7 here and look at something else that supports this sub-theme in the Gospel of John that Jesus was wanting to throw off. This Chasing after sensationalism, this chasing after him for the signs and wonders for the sake of them instead of for the fact that he has the ability to forgive sin, which was what he was trying to illustrate in doing the signs and wonders. They were never an end to themselves. It was never designed by that or to be that in God's eyes. It was to bring attention to him so that they would see that he, as God, has the ability to atone for sin. So in chapter 7 there's a really interesting dialogue that Jesus has with his brothers. Now these are his brothers, his natural brothers. They didn't believe in, in him until after the resurrection. And and some of them became pillars in the church. The Apostle, or not the Apostle, but but James, uh, his brother, wrote the book of James towards the back of the New Testament, and uh, he became known, one of his his nicknames back then was Camel Knees, because he spent so much time in prayer. This guy was all in, and he gives us some great instruction, and he was actually included in the canon of Scripture, but that didn't happen until afterwards. In chapter 7... It says, and after these things, in verse 1 through 5, we'll look at, uh, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea. Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 is telling, it says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So they're saying, yeah, Jesus, go. Do those signs and wonders. Yeah, go put on the show. We don't believe in you, but go ahead. And it's interesting because we see, again, there's this this underlying theme that is going on in the Gospel of John where it's the people are falling short of full-blown faith. They are not allowing that knowledge that he is able to move things around in the physical realm because he operates from the spiritual. We've looked at the material and the immaterial. Remember, as we've gone through the weeks here in the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps using material examples to explain the immaterial world, the heavenly realm. And and the people often were just not connecting the two. You've got all of the stuff over here and all of the stuff over here. And we're going to see this morning when he heals the nobleman's son that this guy gets it, and, and he gets it significantly, uh, and there's fruit. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about is the old saying, God will never give you more than you can handle. Don't ever say that to me, please. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very popular saying in the world or with people who are deistic. And what I mean by that is a lot of people say, well, I believe in God. And, and I believe they're sincere, but they have never come to, again, that full measure of faith required for salvation. Somebody can be a deist and not be a Christian. And, and very often people come up with these kind of strange sayings, like God will never give you more than you can handle. I remember somebody saying, well, cleanliness is next to godliness. And, and with those things, I mean, they're good intended, but if you really start scratching away at them, they don't hold a lot of weight. I mean, and if you say that to me, I'll probably ask you to show me where in the Bible it says that. Now, it does say that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to handle. He will always give a way of escape. So that's true. But to make that jump, we're going to look here at a guy this morning, this nobleman, who had way more than he could handle. And what does he do? He does the right thing. He goes straight to Jesus. So as we look at this, we see that one of the interesting things that that I've noticed is, and maybe you've noticed it too, is when people are in the world and and they're maybe marginal or nominal in their faith, uh, maybe don't show a lot of caring about the things of God unless there's a crisis. You know the old saying, "There are no atheists in foxholes uh, if somebody 's going down, they know their plane's going down they 're not going to want to have a reasoned argument about the existence of god they 're probably going to be crying out for him and so I, I remember reading way back probably thirty years ago, an article by a guy that uh, he was a, a well known theologian um, and it was he said you know god is the God of the average American never really did exist he was He's a handy tool to lie unused on the workbench until this or that crisis comes up and we pick him up and we want to make sure that God is employed in that crisis and as that crisis passes, very often what happens, set him back down and that's not the God of the Bible. Uh, so I was thinking about this, as, again, I was just looking at this passage and thinking, you know, these guys are looking at God as a tool. They're looking at him, uh, and we'll see when he feeds the 5,000, well, he, he says, you know, I would have been excited, and I'm paraphrasing, if you'd have said he can forgive our sins, but you said, well, he fed us, he filled our tummies. And, and there's a vast difference here. Uh, so uh the world looks at God as being, if they believe in him at all, that he's a tool in times of crisis. As we look at God through the eyes of faith, and it's my prayer that we see this because we will all go through things. We see that God is the tool in the crisis. That he is He uses the crisis to cause us, to bring us to those places where we'll cry out and call out for him. He uses these times when our lives are pressed in. I mean, these hard, hard things that sometimes we go through. He uses those. That's a tool that he uses to draw us closer to him, to bring us to that place of crying out for him. And so, very often we see that the opposite actually applies. That he's not Somebody that I just reach for when I have a crisis. And of course he wants us to reach for him. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But he certainly doesn't want us to set him back down at the end of that thing. And we see that, that he actually employs that crisis to draw us to, to further reliance on him. That's why God will never give you more than you can handle. That's why it doesn't make sense. That's why it doesn't add up. Because the scripture is full of examples. Your life and my life are full of examples of why God will allow us to go through things that are more than we can handle because he wants to increase our reliance upon him so that when that thing does come up, where do we go? We go straight to Papa. We go straight to Father, our father. We go straight to the Lord and say, Father, I can't handle this. I don't know what to do. I just, I'm crying out for you to please intervene in these affairs because my life is just not working. It came to a screeching halt with that phone call or I, it's been upside down ever since this event happened or I found out about that person being terminally ill, whatever it is. Just encourage you guys this morning, allow God to be the God of more than you can handle. That's what happens here as we get into this text. The nobleman's son, verse 46. So Jesus came again into Canaan of Galilee where he had made the water wine. You know, I I can't... I have to stop here halfway through a verse because I picture him coming back into Cana after he made the water wine. And I always wonder, when I read this, I think, okay, were people running out of their houses with pitchers? (laughs) Hey, there's the guy that knows how to make wine, you know? But John inserts that because he wants us to identify this is the same place where he did his first miracle. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, Uh, Let's go to the next slide. You see here just a very simple map uh, showing the Mediterranean there on the left and then the the little pink area, the bottom triangle, that's the, the very top of Samaria. And then Galilee, the Sea of Galilee being on the eastern edge of the Galilee region. You see where Nazareth is, that's where Jesus grew up. And then Cana, which is sort of north of there. And then Capernaum. It's over on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it's about 20 to 25 miles. It's 20 miles, 21 miles as the crow flies. I measured it last night on Google. <laughs> but, but, but a, and, and I bet Jesus didn't have that technology. But... Um, <laughs> But if you take the roads, it would probably be closer to 25 because you had to kind of angle down and go around a mountain and all of that. Uh, There's a huge mountain that's beautiful right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee called Mount Arbel uh, that's got these steep cliffs. It's just a beautiful place. And so you had to come up through, it's called the Valley of the Doves. and I don't need to go into the whole geography lesson on this, but it was a bit of a distance off. You know, more than a day's hike, if an average guy can walk 15 miles a day, I mean... Yeah, that's a pretty good day's walk. You could probably make 20 miles if you hustle. So this guy has a son. He comes to Jesus here in Cana. And his son is sick in Capernaum, his hometown. Now he's a nobleman. Uh, the Greek word here is related to the word basileia, which is a kingdom. Uh, and it's, uh, or he's related, it's related to a, a kingly or a royal kingdom line. This guy is probably, he, he, we're not talking about the Jews here, this guy is a Gentile, but he's probably a, a member of Herod's court. Okay? He is a big wheel in Galilee. Now Herod Antipas was the, the ruling Herod of the day, and he's the guy that was responsible for uh, beheading John the Baptist and a number of other atrocities. I mean, he wasn't known to be a nice guy, This guy, by association, was probably not known to be a nice guy either. So, interesting, we have the woman in Samaria who's like the lowest of the low in in human terms because she's a, a rejected woman in a rejected society. And so here she is in Samaria and Jesus comes to her. And now we have a guy, that he's just under the king. He's part of the king's court. Both of them were probably hated in that culture because the Romans were very oppressive and Herod was, he, he was over, he was a tetrarch, which means ruler of a fourth, but he was a, het, a tetrarch in Galilee. And so here's this guy, he comes to this, and if you understand the caste system in Israel, for this guy to come to a carpenter from Nazareth, Galilee is the blue collar region in Israel. We might look at it, well, that's where the hicks live, but it's the blue collar area. And this guy is definitely white collar. His family has probably never missed a meal. His kids are very well educated. He probably lives in a really nice home and has a lot of servants. And here he travels from Capernaum because he's heard about this guy Jesus that does these miracles. And he's thinking, I've I just got to get to him. I, my son is dying. This guy is in despair. He is in total, absolute despair. I don't know if you've ever gone through uh, one of your kids or someone that you love very much being sick to the point of death. That's a horrible, horrible place to be. I mean, in his mind, he might be thinking, I've got nothing to lose. My son's going to die. I've got to make it to go see this rabbi in Galilee because there's nothing else left. I can't sit here and hopelessly just watch this guy perish. He's my son. Uh, maybe thinking about, you know, the, the things that he would wished he had done, you know, or, or those kind of things that go through your mind when you're, you're, your life is, man, I mean, it is totally pressed in. And so here he is, he comes and he seeks Jesus out, this privileged guy from the upper crust uh, and, and seeking out this rabbi that he hears, is it Cana, travels the 20 some miles to go and see him and... Um, As we get into the text here, I want to just invite you to look at five things. I don't want to make this dry and dusty, but there's a progression here that I think is really worth noting. Uh, The first is the nobleman's request in verse 47. The second is Jesus's rebuke. He actually rebukes the guy in verse 48. The third is Jesus's promise in verse 50. The fourth is the revelation of the miracle that Jesus is doing in verses 50 and 51 And finally, the response to the miracle, the fifth thing in verse 53. So there's a whole progression here of what takes place with this interchange that Jesus has with this nobleman from Capernaum. Verse 47, the nobleman's request. So when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now the word "implored" there means that there is an urgency. There, he is saying, "Please, please, let me have a minute of your time. I mean, I need to talk to you. You need to do something here, Jesus. I need. I am imploring you to please come and heal my son. This guy is in, again, as I mentioned, he's in total despair. D- doesn't have any other options. He cries out for Jesus in verse 48." Interesting, Jesus actually rebukes him, but there's a purpose for it. It's not an empty rebuke because he just wants to be, you know, pfft, he's put off. But he sees this as a teachable moment in this guy's life. And very often what the Lord does in our lives, gang, is he allows things into our lives that to draw us closer, yes, but to teach us something about himself that we can actually take with us as we come out the other side of whatever trial it is. Uh, That's part of the work that he does. Uh, You've heard me mention it before, and I'll mention it again. I love Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And yet you have to go to Romans 8.29. We love to quote that, but 8.29 is what tells us what his purpose is. This is for whom he foreknew that those are the ones that he is conforming to the image of his son. What's our purpose here on Sunday mornings? And as we meet through the week, it's great fellowship. I love it. That's, that's a byproduct. But we come to receive instruction. We come to hear from the Lord himself by the power of the Holy Spirit because it's his express will to conform us to the image of his son, to teach us to think more like, to act more like, to be more like our Lord. That's, That's how he has set it up. I know it's crazy, but I mean, when you really start looking at it, but he set it up that way. That's his purpose for us coming together, one of them. The other is for equipping and all of that, and we'll look at that as we go along this morning. But it's truly what his design in this is. So in verse 48, Jesus says to him, he says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The reason Jesus says this to this guy is evidently and obviously this guy had heard about Jesus, the miracle worker. Okay? He needs a miracle. There's no question about it. But he's heard that here's this, this miracle worker's in town. Go check him out. See if he can do something with your son. And Jesus doesn't want a dependent faith. I'll say it again. Jesus does not want a dependent faith. He does not want a faith that's dependent upon miracles. He does not want a faith that's dependent upon signs and wonders. He doesn't want a faith that's dependent upon anything but other than who he is and what he's about. The person and the work of Jesus has to be central to our own personal theology, guys. We have to take and make that translation from this person we see that we study about in this book to allow him to be illuminated in our lives to the point where our desire is to know him more. And as we know him more, we're more conformed to who he is. It's, it, the signs and wonders were a total aside. Yes, they were important. And we'll look at that towards the end of the message this morning. But, but that is not what he wants to see with these guys. And when he says, you people, it's plural. There was probably a crowd, gathered around he was drawing crowds by this point pretty large crowds and they were in favor of him but again it was stunted it was a stunted sort of faith it was a receiving of him that was not fully developed and part of why he came to these people was in spite of that yes but to bring them out of that place to bring them to a place to where they could have a well developed faith and they could trust him with their sins That would be a process. And so he rebukes this guy openly, but he doesn't just make it personal with this guy. He actually rebukes the whole crowd here. And he says, unless you people see the signs and wonders, you won't by any means believe. He says this to a father in crisis, and and the guy doesn't even, um, he doesn't interact. He He doesn't have any interaction with Jesus on the basis of this comment. But I would imagine that it really got this guy to thinking because of what Jesus says next. The, uh, in verse 49, the noble, nobleman says to him, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. I don't want to hear about the, you know, what, you, I understand you're making a point, Jesus, but uh, I've got bigger fish to fry. I, there's, there's more going on here. My son is almost dead. And, and, and I get it, but, but just, just do it, please. Just He presses Jesus now, and, and he's desperate. He's got to have an answer from this guy. The third thing we see is Jesus' promise in this. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Something I love about Jesus is he doesn't wait for this guy or for you and I to get it together. You know, he could have said, you know, until you come to real faith, just going to wait. He didn't have a watch, but you know, (laughs) sundial on his arm, yeah. Um, But he doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for us to get it together. He doesn't wait for us to figure it out. He doesn't wait for us to have that elevated faith. He meets this guy where he's at. Aren't you glad? Aren't you overjoyed that he meets you and I where we are at? That he doesn't wait for us to come to a level of understanding. He may develop that as time goes on, and he does with this man. But he says, you know what? I've told you, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. The guy doesn't pay any attention to that, and Jesus says, You know what? I'm going to heal him anyway. He says, Go your way. Go home. Your son's going to live. I love the grace that we see in this because he does come to us with an abundance of grace, an inexhaustible supply of grace. You know, he he'll never come to us and say, Well, you've had enough. And now I'm going to pull back my grace and show you a thing or two. That's not the God that we serve. It's been said that leaders understand orders. (laughs) And this guy, when Jesus says go, he goes. Interesting, because he is coming to faith here. And you can see it between the lines. He's coming to faith in Jesus' word. Just like what the Samaritans said at the end of his time with them, at the end of that couple of days he spent in Samaria, They're saying, yeah, we're believing because of the word that you've spoken to us. And Jesus, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, reaches down through the ages and beckons to us. I simply want you to believe through the word that I speak to you. It's right here. It's right here. This guy believes. Why do we know that he believes? Because he leaves. He takes Jesus at his word. He stops not pestering, but he stops interacting with Jesus. He stops, you know, imploring him. And I would imagine that his mind was filled with all kinds of things on that 20-mile hike back because he sends him home and the guy goes home. It's another 20, 25 miles back to Capernaum. Well, I hope he's going to do it. I wonder what's going to happen when I get home. I need to hurry because I don't, I don't know still if my son's going to die. I mean, this guy told me my son's gonna live i i just don't know though i mean think about it. if you were in that place we see the story you know, we understand the end from the beginning we know the guy's gonna get healed and all that this guy didn't know that there would have been that niggling doubt in the back of it you know is this real is this is, was that guy really doing something i hope he was i just want so desperately for my son to live Verse 51, we see the revelation of the miracle now. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And then he inquired, verse 52, of them, the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at about the seventh hour, the fever left him. So at about one in the afternoon, remember, we looked at Jewish days, 12 parts. They divided them evenly between sunup and sundown. Noon would be the sixth hour, so the seventh hour would be about one in the afternoon. They said, yeah, at about one, he got better. Notice it didn't say he began to feel better. It says the fever left. He was healed. He sat up and he went, you know, maybe, I'm hungry. (laughs) I don't know what he said, but I mean, the guy sits up in bed and he is well. He's better. He's good probably more than good. I'd be pretty excited if I was feeling that bad and all of a sudden something came over me and I was perfectly fine. This is absolutely a miracle. This is absolutely the hand of God, the power of God working in this guy's life from a distance. Notice that. Don't forget that Jesus is healing this guy from a distance. He is working across space and it doesn't matter if it's 20 miles or it's 15,000, it doesn't matter. He is demonstrating here that he has the ability to work across time and space. He is demonstrating that he is the God of these miracles. And it's a wonderful thing to know that when I pray for someone, it doesn't, I mean, we have friends that uh, run a mission in Thailand, northern Thailand. I pray for them and pray for God to just use them and for the fruit to be there and for their ministry to be blessed and all of that. And I know That God hears those prayers. I don't, I'm not going to worry. I I mean, it's one or the other, guys. You know, we see with the Samaritan woman, he comes to her right on the spot. And he deals with her. We see with the the nobleman's son, he doesn't have to be there. He just says, go your way. It's going to happen. The fifth thing we see here is the response to the miracle. Verse 53, so the father knew that it was the same hour which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. There are a couple of miracles going on here. There's a miracle of his son being healed, but there's a greater miracle. You see, because sickness, as we know, is a temporary condition. Physical illness is temporary. But when this guy's soul is healed, when he and his whole household believe, they're good. They're more than good. They'd have been good if his son had died. And we know, gang, you know, I wish that every time I prayed for healing for someone, that they got well. It doesn't always happen, does it? We have to yield to the sovereignty of God. You, you know, it's even with Lazarus, well, Lazarus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But have you ever stopped to think that Lazarus lived to die another day? There will be something that takes us out. And I'm not trying to get morose here, but, you know, there is a date that's known to God for each one of us. Uh, it's, it's remarkable to me that. that Humanity, we live our lives in denial of the fact that there is a day out there that each of us will die. Or we're going to be caught up with the Lord together in the air, one or the other. And Jesus does the greater miracle by getting this guy's attention to where he makes the leap. He makes the leap from seeking him for the signs and the wonders to see, I want to see this miracle. And he makes the leap and says, You know what? Only one person can do this, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, I'm reading into it here, but, I mean, for him to be able to make that leap, and to believe that Jesus is, I mean, who else was talking to this guy? He's at Capernaum, it's a Jewish community, very small town. And he makes, he makes the leap. He, he elevates his faith now to, be, to where it's full-blown, to where it's fully developed. And that's what Jesus is looking for with these guys. That's what he's not getting in general from the people in Galilee. They're going, wow, he's part of our team. He's one of us. He's part of the home court advantage. You know, he's a Galilean. And he does miracles. Wow, you know, I, I don't want to travel too far. How about we just go get lunch and we'll come back and watch some more miracles? You know, that's sort of the attitude of these guys. It's kind of like David Copperfield. Ooh, ah. And Jesus says, no, that's not enough. No, it's not enough. Unless you come to a place where you stop looking and depending on the signs and the wonders, and you realize that only one person can pull that off, God, it's not enough. And this guy does. Not only him, but his whole family. Uh, I would love to, and I 'm not going to rabbit a trail, I promise um, There are a number of places where it talks about entire families being saved in the Scripture, but let me just summarize with this: There is no greater pleasure as a parent than to see your children, young or old, take that baton of faith and to see them now step out from under being part of your walk with the Lord and establish their own. And I know many of us, are probably most of us are parents in this room, and there are probably some great burdens for children that perhaps don't believe. Don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send workers into the harvest. You know, when we evangelize, there have been times where I've led somebody to the Lord and I've thought, wow, wow, that was great. That was the gift of evangelism, you know? And it's like, no, that's not it. How many people prayed for that guy for 15, 20 years or whatever? Maybe I got to have a hand in the harvest, but somebody planted? Probably a lot of people watered? I mean, this is a group effort. But for this guy's whole household to come to faith in Christ is significant. And it just shows us uh, something that I, I've mentioned before, that healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. And, and, and this guy saw his whole family get on board with this guy Jesus as a result of his son being healed. He has faith not just in the power uh, that Jesus has, but he has faith in his word. I want to encourage you, when we look at the Bible, do you live in the place of understanding that it is the divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God? That you can trust this thing? I mean, you can utterly trust what's written in God's word. And that it is truth. And the word itself does not have life, but it sure brings life. Because that's how we get to know the one with whom we have to do. Utterly reliable. I'll maybe do a series sometime, uh, not on a Sunday morning, but talking about the reliability of the New Testament and the documents there. Utterly reliable. Couldn't not be reliable just because of the, the volume of information that we have, the fragments of, of, of documents that we have that have been overlaid and assembled. It's, it's just miraculous how God ensured its transmission down through the ages, greater than any other work. So this guy moves from signs to a savior. He moves from wonders to worship, essentially. And he's different now, on this side. Now he serves another king. Remember, he's a part of Herod's court. I bet this guy turned over some apple carts. His life was different. He was changed. Verse 54, this again is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The first home that he was in when he did the first sign, it was a home filled with joy. Remember, it was a wedding. And he turned the water into wine. Joyful, music, probably. I mean, crowds, everybody visiting, celebrating the wedding. great time. The second home, not so much. Filled with grief, filled with despair, filled with a longing that something happen, that somehow, at this 11th hour of this kid's life, that God would intervene. and he did. He did. Sharing with the men's group, uh, just a a small personal story. Sharing with the men's group uh, last week about uh, when my daughter was in intensive care. Uh, She spent months there. And um, I remember crying out to God. I was praying through Psalm 61. And we have, there's a worship song we sing that's based on that. It's, hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I'll cry unto you. And when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And I was literally praying Psalm 61 as my daughter was laying there fighting for her life. several years before she went to be with the Lord. And all of a sudden, in the intensive care waiting room, the phone rang. I mean, I was in the place where this guy was, okay? I mean, she was barely hanging on to life. And the phone rang. And somebody said, is there a a Pastor John in here? And I was kind of... Like, uh yeah, it's, it's for you. And that's odd. I never gave anybody the phone number. I mean, it was very strange. And I, I said hello, and there was a woman from my fellowship, which was about 500 miles away. And she said, Pastor John, I've been been praying for you. been praying for Jessica, for, for your daughter. And I, I, I've never done this before. And I said, what's that, Renee? And she said, I've just, it's just so heavy on my heart. I have to, it's like the, the Lord told me to call you and to tell you to read the first part of Psalm 40. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Renee. I appreciate it. Lord bless you. Man, keep praying, you know, and all that. I mean, we had a great visit. I mean, all circumstances considered. So I went immediately, got my Bible out of my car and opened it to Psalm 40. You know what it says? I have heard your cry. And I'm, I'm prepared to move. And I'm going to set your feet on the rock. Psalm 40 is the, the total response to the cry of David's heart in Psalm 61. And I was so blown away. I just, I stood there and wept because God was showing me, very much like what he showed this guy. I hear your cry. I, I hear the cry of your heart. And I'm going to move. And, and and I want you to know, and it was the Lord's way of assuring me that He was in charge of that situation, of the despair that I was in. I was so eased and comforted. Concerned? Yes, of course, I was still concerned as my as a parent. And yet, He is the God we preach Him to be. He is the God that His Word proclaims Him to be. And He does intervene in the human aff- uh, the affairs of of, of humans. Human beings, that, like you've read, I'm ruining this. He does does intervene in the affairs of our lives. He does. And, And I don't want to sound like I'm trying to convince you because many of us know that he does. And we have seen his faithfulness over and over and over again through the eyes of faith. And I just want to encourage you this morning, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if that trial in your life has maybe gone on for a long time that pain in your heart that thing that obstacle that person that you long for but I want to encourage you he hears your prayers his part is to hear our prayers and to to act our part is to trust that he does this guy trusts the words of Jesus and his life is transformed he trusts He would have to trust, and we have to trust, whether or not the Lord brings something about in that situation. Like I said, he doesn't always heal. His answer to my prayer isn't always my desired answer. But he always answers. He often brings us to places where he says, Are you going to trust me even though, or even if? And you can fill in the blank. But that's part of trusting. That's part of true faith in the God that we serve. I encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, let your prayer life be rich. That communication that you have with him, that communion that you have with him, let it be a conversation. Not just petitions. I call it going down the shopping list. Not, and that's fine. He wants us to give him our petitions. But let it be fellowship that you share with with Jesus himself through the power of the Holy Spirit because he wants to to work personally and intervene personally in the affairs of our lives. A couple of things here I want to look at as we wrap up and then we'll take communion at the end of the service. Um, John is showing the greatness of Christ and he's highlighting his power. But he's also highlighting stunted faith. So what does stunted faith look like? I wrote a couple things down here. The first is feeding my ego through the pride of association. Jesus was known to the Galileans, kind of wink, wink. We know you're one of us. The pride of association, they were, they, they were kind of getting kind of hung on that. Yeah, well, you know, we're... We're part of his team. He's a Galilean. Be careful for that. My grandmother, for years, said that I was related to Abraham Lincoln. Because his mother, Nancy Hanks Lincoln. Hanks is one of my family names, going back four generations, five generations. And, and I never had the heart, because I was a good Mormon kid, <coughs> and I did genealogy, never had the heart to tell her before she went to be with the Lord that I had totally disproved that. <laughs> but she loved to drop names. You're related. And and I got up to the Hanks part where Nancy would have come in and, and, and it just didn't exist. And I uh, even found a book and traced my family back to f- the 1500s and all that. But my point is, is that it was sort of the pride of association going on there. Yeah, you know, you're related to somebody really, really special. And you know what? Um, that and a buck will get you a large coffee at McDonald's. It's pretty much it. The se- second here is a sense of entitlement. This stunted faith can take shape as having a sense of entitlement. Oh, I've been going to this church for a long time. That doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. Or I've been a part of that PTA. I've been the president. So, therefore, I'm entitled. Or, or, you know, my son's on the ball team. How many of us have horror stories about that? Not, not personally, but have seen. People get a, we get a sense of entitlement over the weirdest things. And what that does, guys, is it shorts out our reliance on grace. Because if I have a sense of entitlement, I'm no longer walking according to grace, I'm never wa- no longer walking under the umbrella of God's grace. I'm entitled. It's just things to guard ourselves over. The third thing I see is a sense of overfamiliarity with Jesus. Oh, you know, the carpenter's son. He wasn't welcome in Nazareth. Why? Because he was the carpenter's son. He was there was a sense of overfamiliarity with him. They had stunted faith. They couldn't get it. They couldn't grasp and we can we can kind of do the same thing. We can become so comfortable with Jesus and so we can get into a rut of this is just what I do. This is how I conduct my life. This is the course of my life. I do this thing and I, I you know, we can have it to where, remember I've talked about, we start out with tasks from the Lord and then they become uh, routines and then if we're not careful, they can become rituals. Well, that can happen in other areas of our lives, too, to where we just become kind of ritualized because we're so familiar with the things of God that it's now, it's just kind of second-natured and I'm no longer connected. To That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. They became so familiar with Jesus. I mean, think about it. It was a first-century church. And Jesus said, I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. Why? They'd become over-familiar with him. Again, things to guard ourselves over. The second is... We see here where Jesus, earlier in this chapter, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Like I said, he didn't wait for the, the nobleman to get it together, to come to a full understanding. He knew that he was going to use the circumstances that he was in to bring him to a full understanding. But he didn't didn't wait to move until this guy got it. Because he was doing the will of him who sent me. He was Granting life, remember we talked about that last week. He was bringing this guy to a point where he and his family would come to full developed, fully developed faith in Jesus, and that they would step into the kingdom. He goes from unless you see signs and wonders to go, your son lives. In just one verse, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's merciful. He doesn't wait for you and I to get it together before he moves, before he acts, before he pours out his love and his grace and his compassion, his mercy. He's good. There's something in in, in hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible study, called the rule of proportion. I just want to bring this out. Talking about these miracles and the people looking at miracles. The rule of proportion is this. How much time is given proportionately to a thing in the scripture? Okay? Okay? When it comes to miracles, you'll see in the scripture here that Jesus gives very little time to the actual working of the miracle. There's very little said. Uh, He he says, fill the water pots with water and go call for the head waiter. That's it. That's the miracle. Done. And here he says, go home. Your son's going to live. Done. Done. What we tend to do, what humans tend to do, and I'm not saying we as a church because I believe that we're biblically solid in this area, but what people can tend to do is to use God's word to illuminate the miracle. It's backwards. He says, use the miracle to illuminate my word. And that's what he wanted to see with this guy. and That's what happened. The miracle led this guy to a full understanding of who Jesus was. And it, because of the rule of proportions here, There is way more said in both of these stories, in both of these miracles, about the results that were created by the miracle than the miracle itself. Just something tucked in the back of our minds. It's his will to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was not to just go around like David Copperfield, but to go and to allow these things to have the desired result. He speaks a word and the boy is well. He does it from a distance and the results were immediate. Let's go to the next slide, please. Briefly, look at another healing in Capernaum. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city and then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiving you. Now, that's probably not what the guy wanted to hear. I'm paralyzed. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And I love this. Jesus is reading their minds. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your, in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiving you, or to say, Arise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Connected to that, and he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. He goes from the temporal to the eternal. He uses things in the temporal to illustrate the principles of the eternal. He says, the reason for the signs and wonders is to show you that I have the power to forgive sins. It's not my opinion. It's right here. The, the things that, that his brothers were saying, hey, yeah, we don't believe in you, but go show everybody else all your signs and wonders. No. The people in Galilee, hey, you know, this guy's coming to us, and yeah, we're going to receive him gladly. And they did, they received him gladly. But they had some things to learn. We see two instances of Jesus working his power. We talked about the Samaritan woman and uh, through her, her entire city was reached. And then we see here Jesus with the nobleman healing his son from a distance. And through that, his entire family is reached. take just a moment. We're gonna take communion in just a moment.